We are uh, we're starting a new series this morning called Ethos, and over the last few, uh, well, I guess since January, we kind of felt like in our, our sermons we've been gearing towards this thing of us helping you change what you care about, like change what you care about with the way that we read scripture, because it's important, change what we care about of being broken away from the bondage of sin and living in what true grace is, living in faith and not being caught up in works. So over the last, I don't know, eight weeks, we have kind of been in the deep end of the pool a little bit, haven't we? Uh, I felt like we have, I've been in a teaching mode a little bit more, and all those things are perfectly fine and very much needed, but I felt like for this weekend and for the, this month, I wanted to bring us up a little bit to breathe and to just, okay, let's relax and figure out how all these things that we've been learning and learning what we care about, how all those things have changed. So what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is we're going to be in a series called Ethos. And an ethos is basically it's a DNA. It's what makes us, who are we as a church? So if this is your first weekend here, you picked a great weekend because you're going to learn a little bit about who we are. Our, our ethos, if we define it, means it's the, the distinguishing character and guiding beliefs of a person, a group, or an institution. In other words, the ethos is who we are. It's the DNA. And I think it's super important that if you're going to be a part of a church, to know what that church is about and know who they are, who we are, because when you know who we are, then you know why we do what we do and how we do it. It makes perfectly good sense. I tell a lot of people that you can't really do what God's called you to do until you know who you are in Him, because you get it backwards, because God guides and leads and directs. Now, as we work through these, a couple of things I want you to understand as we begin to look at what, what is our distinguishing character as a church? Like, where did these things come from? Did we just magically pull them out of the air and thought, this sounds really beautiful, let's use that. I just want you to tell you that there's four things that guide us as a body. And these four things were not just um, magical thoughts that appeared. They're, they're founded in the scripture and based off conviction of who we felt like this was the church that God had called us to be um, in, in this time. And um, so... I want to jump right into it and just get right into it. You guys good with that? Yeah. So y'all are more excited about potluck than this. That's fine. I'm not offended. Not offended. I hope you get stomach aches at the potluck. It's okay. <laughs> just kidding. I love you. God will heal that. Anyway, here's our first one. We say this. It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. That's our first thing. Well, Robbie, that sounds so simple. Yeah, it does. But a lot of people mess that up. A lot of people mess it up. Let me give you the little inscription. You can go on our website. We have all these. But we wrote a little inscription under every one of these. So it's not about us. It's about Jesus. As a church, we love him and we love what Jesus loves. We are people that have found hope in Jesus. This is not a religion to us. This is a relationship between us and holy God. Everything that we do in our lives and everything we do at this church revolves around the fact that when we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And because of that, because Jesus did that, there's a reaction to the way we respond to that. And our response is, now we strive to give Jesus all of us. All of us. Because we are the body. We are the church. So in everything that we do, Jesus is our only focus. And we could stop right there and say, that's it. Good morning. Glad you're here. That was the sermon. Let's pray and let's move forward. But there's so much more than that. Because like I said, as simple as that may sound, 
that gets convoluted and so messed up. We take something that is so simple to say this whole thing is about Jesus, and we begin to make it more about us. Churches begin to, as they grow, can, they, what happens is they'll move away from a mission, and they move towards maintenance mode. Because there's certain maintenance that has to happen to keep the machine moving. Can I just tell you, this is not a machine. This is a body. And sometimes the body hurts. Sometimes the body grows. Sometimes the body's healthy. This is his body. This is not going to be us moving into maintenance mode. Because we, we are on a mission. We are a mission that just happens to have Sunday morning gatherings. So we say it's all about Jesus and not us. But our natural tendencies... I know mine is, so I'll just be honest, is to move towards being self-centered. Anybody else have that? Is the person beside you like that? Don't point. Don't answer that out loud. But that's what some of, as soon as I said that, some of you thought, I hope the person sitting beside me understood that. But it's a natural tendency in it to be self-centered. We do it in, in everyday life. We, we just have this moment that we think, well, I'm just going to cut a corner here because it's about me. I'm just going to be selfish and not go help do that. I'm not going to do this because right now I just need me. I just need me time. I know I could go. That person needs to be prayed for or that note needs to be written or that encouraging text. But, you know, honestly, I just don't want to open up that right now because I just need me time, me time. And um, we have this tendency that we drift towards those things. And what I have learned is that it is impossible for me to make much of Jesus if I am making much of myself. When it's about me, it's not about Jesus anymore. When I'm trying to build a name for myself, who am I kidding? He's got the greatest name among all names, and I'm trying to build a name for myself. It's about Jesus' name. So I can't make much of Jesus if I'm making much of me. You can't make much of Jesus if you're making much of you. I think one of the hardest things to balance here is we all want to be used by God. The problem is, is bragging about how God's using us. Well, look what we did. Look how many people we have showing up. Look how many people we have in small... Who cares? Like, our metrics as a church is not based on how many people sit in this room. Nowhere in the New Testament did I ever read Paul going, Hey, John, how many people you got showing up to your church? Because it wasn't a big deal. They weren't looking for church attendance. They were looking for involvement into the body of the kingdom. Who's being discipled and who's replicating that? Because when you're about Jesus, you're about discipleship. Because you want people to know there is a life that he has given us to live and to follow in his example because of what Jesus has done. You need to hear the story too. It's the gospel. And we get so comfortable within ourselves. This is why John says in John chapter 3 verse 30, he says that I must decrease. Jesus has to increase. Because he knew that both of both of them could not increase at the same time. So if I increase, Jesus decreases. If Jesus increases, then I decrease. Because if you read the letters of Paul, there's this thing called the trajectory of Paul. When he begins writing, he's just a sinner. But the more time that he spends in the church and with the body of Christ, his writings go from being, I'm just a sinner, to some of the last words Paul says is, I am the chief of all sinners. Because the closer he got to Jesus, the more he realized who it was really about. This is why it's so important for us to spend time in the Scripture. This is why it's so important for us to get away from the law and live in grace. Because when we live in grace and we live within the Scriptures of the living Word, we draw closer to Jesus and a little bit more of us dies every day. 
That's what he's talking about. You must, you got to die. Take up your cross. You got to walk this to die to self so that Jesus and Jesus alone is glorified. So what I want us to do is break down Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 through verses 20, uh, verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, you can open that. If not, we're going to have it on the screen. But to set this up, in this passage, Paul is writing this from a prison cell in Rome. Okay, so And not like a big, nice, fancy jail cell. I'm talking like probably the size of a porta potty type jail cell, probably under the same conditions too. So Paul's writing this letter. I mean, he could be complaining right now. He could be, you know, I don't even care. I don't have time to write this. I'm just going to sit here and just complain the whole time. But he chooses to use what is a bad situation to pen these words because to him, Jesus was more important than what his comfort was in the moment. He, he knew that there was a message that had to get out to the churches. A church that he hadn't even been to because it was important. Because he was about the big C church. It wasn't a competition. That's, I see this all, as I coach pastors all over the U.S., it's always a competition between churches. Churches were never meant to compete against one another. Churches are made to complete one another. We are made to serve alongside one another. Every church in this community we need. Because the gospel is that important. Now, whether how they do it and their philosophy and all these things, we can disagree, agree. But where we will stand is that Jesus is glorified alone. That it's not about us. So Paul in this letter writing this to these churches, he's laying out who Christ is to the audience and to us as a reader when, when he said, when we have this focus that becomes about me and not about Jesus anymore. Paul points out in this very short letter, he says, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. Yes, Jesus has done a lot of things for us. He's provided for us. He's provided salvation for us. He's done more than anybody else ever has for us. But he said, listen, it's still not about you. It's about him. And so when you believe in a theology that leads back to you, you don't believe in theology anymore. You believe in a meology. It's a study of myself. It's what I want. See, if you go back to Psalm chapter 23, for the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He gives me peace. Isn't that a wonderful verse? Did y'all catch the last piece of that in verse 3 when it says, and I do these things for my name's sake. Yeah, God is good and God gives us these things, but it's not for us to be glorified. He does it for his name's sake. Because you know why? Because when you're in the, in the moment of having this peace and in a green pasture, you have a lot to praise because God's good and you can't help but talk about the goodness of God. And he says, I do that for my name's sake. I give you what you need in the way that you were designed so that I will be glorified. So in Colossians 1, Paul's moving us away from me theology, and he's guiding us back to making this about Jesus or, or becoming Jesus-centered, Jesus-centric here. Because Paul knows that beginning in verse 15, when he writes this, in the midst of, of, the, of the church, they are ripe with heresy that has come in. We've, we saw this in the book of Galatians, false teachers. There's always going to be a false teacher to come in and try to, to knock you off the right theology. Always. So he begins setting this presence. Now understand, as we read this book, here's what should happen when you study Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 23. Every verse should make you feel a little bit smaller in comparison to who God is. Because what he's trying to show you is we're not a big of a deal, much of a big deal as we think we are in comparison to who Jesus is. We are who we are because of Jesus. 
And he says this, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. What is he saying? Things that you see, he made that. Things that you don't see, he made that. He's the image of all these things. He, he was in these things, all these things were created. And he says, even uh, whether they're things on thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, read this word with me. What does he say? All things were created through him. And what's the last statement? What is Paul trying to say? You're not as big of a deal as you think you are. Like Jesus created you. He made you with purpose to serve him. When we're great, it's because Jesus is greater. So Paul here uses this term firstborn. And and in the language, it can mean a position. We actually get our word prototype from this word. And so when Paul uses the phrase firstborn, he's saying Jesus is, he's, he's the prototype of all creation. In other words, He's the template on which all things were made. Because in the beginning, everything was working in order the way it was supposed to. We did not deal with cancer. We didn't deal with fighting with spouses. We didn't deal with racism. We didn't deal with these issues because they didn't exist because everything worked the way that God had designed it to. And then in Genesis chapter 3, the enemy comes in with temptation And sin enters the world, and now all these issues that we have are now results of sin that we deal with. And what he's saying was in the beginning, the template that all things were created on was perfect. Paul's saying, you were created by Jesus and for Jesus. That would be his summarization of that that piece. It's important to remember that Paul is asserting the truth that Jesus is God. This is the thing that the, 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 the... People of Israel, the Jewish people, ignored that he's not just another Messiah. He is the Messiah, the only Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And then many would say that that's not true. Even to this day, many Jewish people are still waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue them. And Paul is preaching this. No, all things were created through him. He is the Godhead. He is this Messiah. All things were created through him. And for him. And if we admit it, it's, it's kind of embarrassing how easily we as believers can move away from our dependence on God for salvation. And we can begin to seize and take over his role as Lord. And we become the CEO of our own lives. And we begin to dethrone him from his rightful place in our lives. You know, we lose sight that what is going on in the world is much bigger than what we will ever see or experience because we don't see things the way that God does. So even at our, as our, at our best, as we pursue living this godly legacy, even at our best, knowing that life is eternal, you and I can still be self-centered individuals instead of being God-centered. We have to fight it. I mean, does anybody agree with me on that? We just have to fight that of not being self-centered. I read a blog this week by author Jared Wilson, and he talked about self-centeredness, but I love what he said when he says, I wake up this way, self-diagnosed. I wake up this way, and I bet you do too. We wake up in self-sovereignty mode. 
then we get frustrated because we keep running into people who think they're the center of the universe. Anybody else? He says it's frustrating. But what a splendid mercy, even a severe one. Then when Jesus gives us a hard shove out of our own makeshift thrones in all of our little planets that we set into orbit all around us, what is he saying? We have to be reminded that we don't sit on the throne. Jesus does. And yeah, people are going to aggravate you. And there are people that are going to think they're the center of the universe. But it doesn't mean that it's not our job to dethrone them. Jesus does that. Our job is to love, pray for them, ask him to please move in their life, and please move in their life rapidly. Or give me more patience, one of the two. You know, the message of Christianity proclaims that Christ is first above all things. It's first above all things. It doesn't mean that you're not important. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about you. He absolutely is in love with us as his people. Matter of fact, he said there's nothing that you or I could do to ever make him love us less because he loves us. And what he's telling us is, it's about me though. When you serve me as your God, as your Savior, your life will work the way that it was designed to work and you will be everything that you have been designed to be. But at the basic root of all of this is sin. We all have a sin problem. If sin is any feeling or thought or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure or put God above all things, the bottom line of sin and the root of all sin is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that doesn't treasure the things of God. Sin runs right alongside of idolatry, of putting things over who God is. And the sad part about it, even as his church, even personally speaking, even from my own heart, that nobody in the universe gives Christ enough honor that is due to him. We all fall short of that. And again, it's, it's a thing that we have to fight. So even though Jesus is this preeminent creator, we all have chosen to worship and serve the, cre- uh, the creature rather than the creator. We do this in our personal lives. We do this in the church where we will put, like these screens are way more important than anything else. So we got to get these screens up and we got to get microphones. Can I just, we don't need all this stuff. We could sell it tomorrow and burn the trailer. Because if Jesus is here, we have everything we need as a church. We are not dependent on equipment, on experiences. We are dependent on the Holy Spirit because if he doesn't show up to this place, we are toast. When I talk with pastors that are asking, how do we grow churches? Do we need this? Do we need that? No, what you need to do is get on your face before a holy God and ask the Holy Spirit to intervene and move on your behalf and do what he tells you to. If he tells you to buy lights and smoke and whatever else, fill in the blank, and that's what the Holy Spirit says, go do what Jesus told you to do. But if he tells you not to, just be obedient in what God has called you to do. Paul says, in verse 17, he's driving this point deeper. And he is, Jesus is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. He's saying that Jesus is the most, um, he's the most superlative person that has ever lived. He's, he's supreme. There's nothing greater 
than him that has ever walked this earth. He's saying that Christ just isn't a man, but he is the Son of God. Like we've got to put in perspective of who he's talking about. He said he was present with the Father in the very beginning in creation. Did you know that? In the very beginning of time in the book of Genesis, listen to the language that's being used as they're creating. When God says, and we created man in our image, the Holy Spirit and Jesus were in the very beginning. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Paul's pushing them back to that understanding. He says not only that, that, that God has, or Jesus was at the creation, and he helped set everything in the motion, but that Jesus continually sustains creation. That the Bible even says in Romans that even us as a creation, we're groaning for the coming of Jesus to come and make things right because even down deep inside, we know that this life is not all that it's supposed to be. That there's more on the other side for us. But our job as believers is to usher heaven into earth because Jesus came to build the kingdom of God here. And we are representations of his kingdom. And every time we do something on Jesus' behalf, we're either ushering in a little bit of hell or we're ushering in a little bit of heaven. Every time you flip that person off on Ashley Phosphate, you usher a little bit of hell in. But every time you just pray for them, like, God, I don't know what their rush is, but I'm just praying that if there's an emergency, that you help in an emergency, and if it's patience, that you would give them patience. You usher a little bit of heaven in. This is why I find it so just valuable just to hold a door open for somebody. We've lost that. I'm amazed that every time that I hold a door open for somebody, especially someone who's much older, that they're just, I thought that was dead. Because what do you do? I mean, it's a simple act, but you open up a door of kindness to people. And in a dark world where we live, it makes a change. It, it brings a little bit of light, ushers a little bit of the kingdom into what we do. So even the small things, I think so often we get caught up in having to do all these grand things for Jesus and he's just asking us to be obedient and even the small things of being kind to people. Because it's kindness that leads people to salvation. That's what his word says. So he says he's a, Jesus is a sustainer. He's not just a single authority or force or a power. There's no power that's greater than Jesus. He says Jesus perfectly reflects God's glory of who he is. And he was filled by God as he walked among us on the earth and, and showed us what this life was to be. So Jesus is preeminent because he came before us, he helped to create us, and he reigns over all the universe with supreme authority. That's really good news for us today. Because he didn't just dip out on us and leave us hanging. That you may think that God's not at work, but you've got to open your spiritual eyes and see that he is clearly working in our community. We just have not gone into the places that he's working. I tell people when we do mission stuff, we're not taking Jesus to other countries or other parts of our, our town. We're just going to simply point out where God's already at work. He's already moving there. And sometimes it takes people to see you and me serving for them to see who Jesus really is. And we'll get on that here in a couple of weeks. But verse 17 says that all things are before him and in him. And listen, all these things hold together. He says, because if Jesus is a sustainer, then he is the glue that holds all of these things together. If your life's falling apart, you probably have pulled away from Jesus because he holds your life together. Your marriage is in shambles. Where's your relationship with Jesus? Because he sustains it and holds all things together. People are so quick to walk out on a marriage. 
But God has given you everything that you need if you would just listen to him and do it the way that he has commanded you to do. And so he says that he holds everything together. Well, does that mean that if we don't have Jesus and without any of God's involvement, that everything that we know, see, understand would be gone? Yeah. Yeah, without it, gravity's gone. I mean, we're just floating at this point. That would, that would be weird. Gravity would cease to work. Planets, including our Earth, would, would fail to maintain their orbit. We wouldn't have any oxygen because Jesus sustains everything that we have. So everything falls apart. He is... Paul says he is the sustainer. And the point that Paul's making is significant to the Christians in this church at Colossae because they were at a place where many of them were wondering if it was even time to go try something else. Because we've been doing this a little while. Should we just go find something else to do? These false teachers had come in and told them there were other ways to do this. And they were confused. And they had gotten away from who Jesus was doing. They were being tempted to find, pursue other religious options outside of Jesus because they were trying to add. There's always something trying to add to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus plus fill in the blank. And if you do this thing, then God will be honored. And what he's saying, no, I'm just asking you to be faithful. I had somebody ask me not long ago, do you guys feel like you're a successful church? I said, I'm not aiming for success. I don't believe that God's called us to be a successful church. I believe God's called us to be a faithful church. I said, I would, I would re, reframe your, your way of thinking is that God, I don't know that God calls us all to be successful. I don't know that God's ever told us to be successful. I think God's always said, you're to be faithful. Just be faithful. Because if you'll be faithful with a little, then I'll entrust you with a lot. But if God doesn't give us a lot, we're going to continue to be faithful with what we have. Because it's, it's a lot to me because it's more than what we could have. It could just be me preaching to myself, which I probably need to do more often. Because <laughs> I reference Ashley Falls Fate Road quite a bit. Understand this false teaching came into this church. And it was not just in the church, it was the broader culture of what was happening. And the church was unraveling. The culture's unraveling. Notice Paul's approach to this. Paul, in the face of this, doesn't give them 10 ways to battle discouragement. 10 ways to have your best life now. Paul didn't do that. He points them back. You're discouraged? You feel like your life's in shambles and unraveling? I'm going to point you back to Jesus. This isn't self-help. This is Jesus. And he takes that approach. Don't ever fall for the whole, if you follow these three things, these ten things to greater life, greater success. Don't, do, don't fall into that trap. Just draw closer to Jesus because Jesus holds all things together. Again, your life's falling apart. You don't need a se- You notice how many self-help books come out every year? We don't have like the same one because everybody, there's another, oh, that didn't work. Here's another one. Here's my follow-up to my follow-up to my follow-up self-help book that this one actually worked. It's all Scripture. He says, point back to Jesus. But we're all searching for our best life now, better life later. Jesus didn't just come to give us a better life. Jesus came because he is life. And there's a big difference between the two. We find our life in Jesus, not because of the things that we do. 
He's not looking for us to receive some type of validation. He's saying, just be obedient and faithful in what I've called you to do. And in that, you will find everything that you need because that's what I said I was coming to give you. Not just life, but abundant life. Life to the fullest. So he says, everything revolves around Jesus. Everything. We always point people back to it. I find it interesting that Paul sets this letter up. When you look at verse 15 through 17, he sets up the major theme of those verses to be the supremacy of Jesus over all of creation. But he changes the theme in these next couple of verses when we start in verse 18 through 23, and he's now given his supremacy over redemption. And he says this, and I want you to pay close attention to this next verse. This is the verse that many people in the church Leaders, pastors, attenders have seemed to have forgotten and walked away from. He says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. I want to read that one more time. I feel like I'm about to get amped up. I'm trying to take a breath. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. I'm going to get on a soapbox for a second. Is that okay? Somebody prayed for me this morning and said, it just let, I pray that Robin go off script. So, I, in Jesus' name. Who's the head of the church? Not a trick question. Who's the head of the church? Jesus. Well, I thought you were. You're the pastor. Well, I'm. Jesus is the head of this church. I just work under him and do whatever he asks me to do. The church is his bride. And we are a dirty, cheating, scandalous harlot. And he loves us. And he loves us unconditionally. The church belongs to Jesus. It was his blood that was shed for us. Not mine, not yours, not any celebrity. It was Jesus' blood that was shed so that we can gather here this morning under his banner, under his name. But unfortunately, somewhere along the way, some pastors and leaders and church attenders have hijacked what the church is supposed to be. The pulpit has turned in to a fashion runway of trying to get on preachers and sneakers. God doesn't need you on preachers and sneakers. He doesn't need us to turn this house into a business and into fashion trends. What he needs is for godly men and women to stand boldly and preach the gospel that changes lives. That is what we're missing. Amen. Paul says that we preach Christ crucified and resurrected. It doesn't always feel good when Christ is preached crucified and resurrected. Because I can tell you there are parts of my life that Jesus is having to cut out and it's painful. Oh, it's really good that he wants to change me. But it's painful when, I'm, when I have to face my own sin of what I'm doing that is direct in violation of what God has commanded me to do. Pastors are not CEOs. 
Churches are not corporations. Members of the community are not investors. We are shepherds. We are family. And we are a community of servants. We are his church. And I can't say that enough. My concern as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus is that we have allowed our personal preferences and our wants and our desires to carry us in the places the Holy Spirit has never called us into. And that is dangerous ground. This is why when we say it is not about us, it is about Jesus. Because when we get off that train and we begin making this about us, there is a whole mess load of carnage of people that get hurt in the wake. And they turn away from the gospel. Understand that. They turn away from the gospel that is strong and has redemption all over it because of the way people who call themselves followers of Jesus act. The day that that happens here, we've got to shut the doors because we can find better things to do. I'm not knocking any church in the community. I'm not knocking any church that I've seen on Facebook or online or anything. I'm just telling you the current trend that the church is going. And I just believe that when Jesus is put in the place that he belongs and held to the highest authority that he has and honored the way that he needs to be honored, the church will do what it's supposed to. We set out with this thought at Together Church that our job, my job, is not to build this church. Jesus never called us to build a church. Did you know that? When he stood with Peter that day, he said, I will build my church on this rock. You know what he told us to do? Our follow-up was later on in Matthew when he says that your job is to go and make disciples of all nations. If you'll do that, I'll build the church because it's my church. I don't want your little dirty hands on it because you'll mess this thing up. Go disciple people because it's through your brokenness and through your weakness that people will see how good I am as a God. We have to move back to this place of, of being obedient to the Holy Spirit, to hearing the Holy Spirit, so that we can stay in check of what we do and why we exist. We cannot manipulate our metrics to baptize unbiblical ambitions any longer. So why haven't we had a baptism yet? Well, we don't do baptisms until we have enough X groups and, and together groups to put people into so you're being discipled before we just dunk you underwater and let you go. Because we've done you a disservice if you just get put underwater and you never get involved into a, a group that's discipling you. You just got wet. Well, this sounds kind of dogmatic. I'm, not, I'm just telling you. I'm not trying to be dogmatic. I'm just telling you the scriptures. I'm just telling you what Jesus has asked us as a church. Paul said that he's the head of that church. Jesus is the head. He's above everything in the church. He's above every person, every ministry, every event, every agenda, every policy, every pastor. There is nothing, nothing more important than Jesus in this church. The moment that we move away from Jesus being the head, we have then moved towards self-centered, me-theology church, and that does not need to exist. It actually needs to be dead. There probably are some churches that should just probably actually die. And it's okay. But there also are some churches that just need to get Jesus back, and they're going to do incredible things. 
Well, Robbie, you know this is probably going to come back to bite you one day. That's fine, because I need to be reminded too. I have to remind myself every time that I pull up into this parking lot that this is God's. And if he wants to remove me, he can remove me at any time. My job is to make much of him. Your job is to make much of him and disciple. I'm going a lot off script, and I apologize for that. But I want to echo what Paul's saying. If we don't do these things, we don't keep Jesus first, we are just a resounding gong making a bunch of loud noise. And people aren't attracted to loud noise. Jesus is the most attractive thing that we have here. I mean, our chairs don't match. Our pipe and drape blows in the wind. We use tracks with drums in them. We don't have a drummer. That's not, that's not attractive at all. It's kind of like showing up and seeing your prom date for the first time going, oof. But you show up and you encounter who Jesus is here. And that's why we want people to keep coming back. I want you to leave this place talking more about Jesus than what happened here. Because that's my heart. So Paul says, be a church that, that puts Jesus first. Die to yourself. Make Jesus shine. I'm going to skip a bunch of notes here because I want to get into this last piece. Colossians chapter 1, 19 through 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, and whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Through Jesus, every person can experience reconciliation. See, that's something that you and I can't do. We can't give people salvation. Did you know this? We can, we can have... Thousands of people showing up here if we want to. There's all kinds of guides on how to get thousands of people to show up in this gym, which would be miserable, by the way, because we're almost out of chairs. We can get thousands of people to show up here. I, I mean, I can do that. You can do that, right? We can do that. Um, we could put a thousand people into small groups. We have systems that say, oh, well, if you do this, this, and this, people will show. We can say things. We can do that. We could have a thousand people get baptized in no time. We, could do, we, we can do that. We can do all of the, you and I can do all of those things. You know what the one thing that you and I cannot do? Salvation. I can't do the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. Don't get caught up thinking because you did all of this. That your small group is growing. It's the talk of all the groups. What he's saying is, you did that. But you don't create salvation because that's the only that's the thing that I do. And he's saying, it's by the blood of the cross. It's Jesus making this reconciliation. Last verse, right here. Catch this because remember, Paul is slowly bringing us into this place, and he really hits and stings us hard right here. He says, "And you, oh, now it's personal. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind." You who were far from God, hostile towards God. Other scriptures even say that you and I were an enemy towards God. Look what he says. We were, we're doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you to be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been uh, proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's saying, this is why I exist. God has called me, and he's called you to proclaim the fact that he wants to reconcile all things back to himself, back to the original template and the prototype called Jesus. And he tells us that I paid such a high price for you so that you could be holy and blameless and above reproach. Because without Jesus, I am not holy, I am not blameless, and I'm definitely not above reproach. I can't do that to change that within me. The Holy Spirit does. So all of us deserve God's wrath because we rejected his worth. After living a perfect life free from sin, Jesus died this excruciating death on a cross. Receiving death for what you and I deserved. That's grace, by the way. Getting something that we didn't deserve at God's expense. If you consider the seriousness of your sin by pondering what Christ had to do in order to save you and me, Christ, the creator, being crucified, the preeminent one being persecuted, the supreme God-man suffering, the king of glory being crushed. It took the death of Jesus, the one and only son of God, to cancel our debt and our sin. How can we walk around thinking this is all about us? So ultimately, not even the death itself could defeat Christ. The father raised Jesus on that third day. He raised him from the dead by his spirit, and he seated Jesus at the right hand, which is the hand of authority. And through his death and resurrection, Christ is redeeming and reconciling hostile sinners to himself. And we share that message of the gospel. That is the good news this morning. Christ becomes first in our lives when we realize that he is greater than everything else. So here's where, I want to, here's where I want to end today. Why do we have the value? Why do we have the ethos of saying it's not about us? It's all about Jesus. Because he paid such a high price for us. Because he is God. He's not just that for our life, for our church, but he should be that for our personal lives as well that we put Jesus back. So here's how I want us just to respond this morning. Just in the moment that we're singing, just have some time between you and God. Just let the words of the song minister to you. Maybe you need to sit there and just pray. But I think every one of us could just sit and confess for a moment that God, I've I've made a lot of this about me. I've made my job about me. I've made my family about me. I've made my parenting about me. I've made my together group about me. I just want to make it about you. I just want to confess and repent that I'm off. And maybe for some of you, you don't know who Jesus is. Maybe you're one of those he's talking about. Like, you're being hostile towards God. Don't even realize you're being hostile towards God because you're being disobedient. God is calling you today to redeem you, to to give you salvation. It's the Holy Spirit working. If If you got this feeling in your chest right now that as these words are being spoken, that there's something going on, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing that only He can do. And if that's you, there's no magical prayer. 
There's no special thing you have to say. But if that's you, here's what I want you to do. Just respond to that and say, God, I, I hear you. And I repent. And I need you to rescue me. And then you're going to do something really, really brave. You're going to walk to that new here table. If you've been in our accelerant gathering, if you're part of the accelerant gathering, I want you to go to the new here table in just a moment to pray for anybody that just needs to be prayed for. If, if you need to talk to someone because your life doesn't know Jesus, go have a conversation with someone in our accelerant gathering. They'll be at this new here desk right here. They would love to pray for you. But would you pray with me as we close today? Just respond. God, I thank you so much for who you are. I just ask you would be glorified. It's not about us. It's about you. We're not going to always do things right as a church, but we are going to be quick to, to correct and fix anything that you've asked us to fix and correct. We will be repentive when we need to be repentive. We are, we're going to be obedient. We're going to be faithful to what you've called us to do. God, thank you for your son. Thank you for those this morning that are making decisions because they, they know they've got to get in line with what you've called them to do. And I just pray in these moments that you give them the courage to walk and speak with someone so they can be prayed over and we can get them connected into a group. And God, that the discipleship process can continue in their life. And I thank you for what you're going to do in these moments. And we pray these things. And the name that is above every name. Amen.